Good morning. It is good to see you all here, true disciples, on a holiday weekend, coming to church. It's good. Good for you. Uh, we are uh, continuing in our study. Uh, we've been going through the Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and we're going to continue with that today. Um, this church at Philippi was a church that seemed to have a really special place in Paul's heart. Uh, in the fourth chapter, he refers to them as his beloved and his crown. And he speaks of this great uh, desire he has towards them and his longing to see them. And uh, this church also loved Paul to the degree they loved Paul and his work, and they were the first to step forward and financially support him when he was in need. And so um, it's, a, it's a letter that's filled with affection and encouragement. It, um, it's not a, a corrective like some of the letters that he wrote were, um, but it's, um, he was writing to them as a, as a father and as a friend. And uh, nine times in this short letter, he refers to rejoicing the joy in Christ. So uh, he starts that where we've got ourselves to chapter 3, uh, verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Um, you know, my first pastor uh, was fond of the use of the word inculcate. Now, when I first heard him use that word, I, I had no idea what that meant, and so I, I had to look it up. And it, it, it means, Webster says, it means to teach and impress by frequent repetitions or admonitions. My children, my poor PK children, knew well that from their experience. They, they kind of had numbered my lectures, you know. It's just as they rolled their eyes, you know, this is dad's lecture number 37, you know, and... But, uh, but Paul was not, was not afraid, he was not a, didn't apologize for doing the same. He writes this, it says, It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. I, I found that it is hard to maintain a proper perspective on a lot of important subjects um, without continual reminders. Um, Sometimes what I know to be true is often directly challenged by uh, competing ideas or doubts or, or um, um, sometimes it, it, it's just lost in the, the fog of living you know, and the distractions of life. And so, uh, so I need to hear the same things over and over and over again for those to be real for me. So what was Paul reminding them of? Well, it was a warning. It was a warning uh, it, that it wasn't, apparently, it wasn't the first time that he had he had warned them about this, even though we don't have any written documentation that shows when he did it before. But he says this, he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators 
of the flesh. So what's he talking about? Watch out for these dogs. Now many of us, many of you, probably are very fond of your dogs. But in the uh, ancient Middle East, this would have been an incredible insult to call someone a dog. They were, they were regarded as uh, filthy and, and, and to be avoided at all costs. I know, I know that from experience, as we go to Nicaragua frequently, there's all of these super skinny, mangy dogs that are wandering the streets, scavenging whatever filth uh, they, can, they can find, you know. And so you would never want to cuddle with them. So this is, this is a, a great insult uh, to call them dogs. These mutilators of the flesh, as Paul calls them, were Judaizers. Now, by, by mutilators of the flesh, what he's referring to is circumcision. He's referring to the circumcision that was the mark uh, that God had given his, these, the Jewish people as a, as a sign of their, their specialness, if you will, their chosenness. And these Judaizers were Jewish believers, believers in Christ, it seems, supposedly, who taught that it was not enough to simply put your faith in Christ alone, but that it was also necessary to be circumcised and to keep the laws of Moses in order to really be right with God. They had, and those Judaizers, it seems, had infiltrated a, a lot of the early churches. And they were undermining the all-sufficiency of what Christ had done on the cross. And so this was not only bad theology, it was evil. Paul says this is evil. This is evil because it directly contradicts the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, through his death and on the cross, destroyed the separation that was between us and God, and that through faith in him, we're made right with God. Nothing that we have ever done in the past would, would prevent us from experiencing that reality, and nothing that we could ever do could do would be to earn it. So it seems as though this, this evil infection, if you will, had, had not taken root in this church at Philippi like it had in other places, like the Galatians, where Paul uh, sends a letter directly, sternly uh, coming against such a notion. See, but what he's saying to the Philippians is that there is always a danger of falling into that kind of thinking. See, it's any additional requirements or standards beyond the simple faith in what Jesus did on the cross, his bodily resurrection and, and lordship, any additional standards have to be resisted. And what what we have to be vigilant about that, he says, because these things come in subtle and often religious ways. See, this, this was Paul's signature teaching, right? Justification by faith. 
It was something that he laid out kind of in, 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 in a much greater detail in his letter to the Romans and his letter to the Galatians. And um, it, uh, it, his teaching was that simple faith in Christ and Christ alone uh, brings us into right standing with God. Undeserved, unmerited, we have full rights as sons and daughters in being part of his family by grace through faith. Okay, that's a signature teaching that goes all throughout Paul's writings to the churches. But you see these Judaizers, for the Judaizers, this cutting off of the flesh through circumcision was a mark the mark of being God's chosen people. But what Paul is arguing is he says this circumcision, uh, it, it's rather the cutting off of the old sin nature by the work of the Holy Spirit within us that is truly, as we've put our faith in Christ, is truly the mark of being God's chosen people. Okay? So, Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such con confidence. So what does it look like? I mean, Paul had just, we, last week, we, we heard how Paul uh, spoke of Timothy and Epaphroditus and kind of lifted them as examples of following Christ. And now he uses his own life to explain what, he, what he's talking about here. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. See, for, for the Judaizers, they put great confidence in sort of their religious pedigree, their family lineage from the great leaders of the Jewish faith, and from, from their morality and their practices. Okay, And in their minds, that's what made them right, truly right with God. But so, so Paul says, well, if that's your standard, I, I could best you all. He says, I, I'm, he says, I have incredible credentials. I am of the purest Jewish descent. I have, I have had the highest religious education. I was a member of the strictest religious sect amongst the Jews. On top of that, he says, I, I've had, I have a reputation of being zealous and, and a, and a uh, staunch defender of the Jewish faith. And even on top of that, he says, I, my, the life that I'm living is unreproachable as far as keeping the Jewish law. So there. <laughs> Years ago, a member of the church his mother was dying, and she had asked him if he would speak to me if I would come visit her. She wanted to talk. So I was glad. I didn't know her. I'd never met her, so I was glad to go talk with her. And she was in the very last stages of cancer. And she wanted to know, the question everybody wants to know at that point, is how would she know if she was going to heaven? 
And before I could even answer her, she begins to tell me her life story. And she told me how she was a faithful wife and married for many years, uh, how she raised five kids, which was an incredible sacrifice on her part, how she had a ton of grandchildren who, who loved her. She told me about how all the kids in the neighborhood used to come to her house to visit, visit her. She was a grandma to all of them, and she used to bake cookies for them. And she just went on and on telling me this great story. And, and uh, when she was done, I said, well, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful. I mean, here's a dying old lady, you know. I said, but uh, I would never want to stand before God with your resume. And as shocking as that might sound, I mean, that is, that is true. I said, I mean, how good is good enough? How good do you have to be to be right with God? I said, my only confidence, my only confidence is in Jesus Christ and the cross and what he has done for me. So Paul goes on. He says, but whatever was my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. All the privilege and status that Paul could claim for himself with this stellar resume that he had, he said was worthless. Having come to know Christ, he had a whole new value system. His, his, what he valued radically changed. No longer were the normal things that we put claim to that to prove our worth, our value. He said, no, the, no longer do I put any, uh, do I count on those? You know, my spiritual heritage, my race, my cultural heritage, my education, my status, my, my achievements in this life. No all of that has been lost to me. Marshall, <laughs> he, God bless him on his sabbatical, loves to point out that the word here for rubbish, is the Greek word is skubalon. And it's translated rubbish or refuse, or it could be literally translated dog poop. And so I think for Marshall, it's kind of like Christian cussing, you know. <laughs> oh, scubalon, you know. So, so it's not just of n these things have no value. They had a negative value as far as his feelings of being right with God. See, what mattered to, to Paul was knowing Christ personally, intimately. 
And that was only possible through faith, through faith and confidence in what Jesus has done for him and nothing that he has done himself or could do himself. So, so he wasn't talking about creedal faith. He wasn't a talking about just that initial saving faith. But he was talking about a life of faith centered on Jesus. He said he wanted to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. See, all of that speaks to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within us that changes us from the inside out so that we can live those kind of Christ-like lives, so that we can follow in his footsteps. Paul goes on. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, when I was a young man, which was a very long time ago, uh, or, or even when I, as I was an ambitious and energetic young pastor, I read these verses like a battle cry, you know, forgetting those things that are behind and storming the gates, pressing forward to know Christ, you know, having put my hand to the plow, I will never turn back. And I, I knew God had a call on my life. I knew that there was a destiny to fulfill, and surely Jesus and I were going to change the world, you know, and I was going for it, nothing, at whatever the cost. And so, although some of that was kind of right and true in a, in a way, I've come to appreciate that what Paul was getting at was a much deeper thing than the, the ambitions of a young man. See, I've come to understand it at a much deeper level, what he was getting at. Jesus took hold of me, not the other way around. I had nothing to offer to him. So why did he choose me? Or, or, or I should say, to, for what purpose did he choose me? I mean, it is true that Jesus is changing the world and he's going about ultimately setting all things right and I have this tiny little part in that story. But see, Jesus snatched me out of my worthless life for a relationship with him, to know him. In his relentless love, he pursued me in order that I would know him as a friend, that I would know the Father's unconditional love for me and that that would be the, the bedrock of my life. And see, like all friendships, that friendship is deepened by, over time with proximity and with communication. You know, two weeks ago, Liz reminded us how 
about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples at the, at the Last Supper. And he, it goes like this in John 13. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist and went on to wash the disciples' feet. But see, verse 3 here is incredibly important. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going, and that enabled him, if you were. That was, that was the, again, bedrock in his life that enabled him to take the form of a servant, to empty himself and take on the form of a servant, to serve others, to, to do what he describes in chapter 2. See, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we know the story. It is baptism. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, that voice of the Holy Spirit continues to speak today. That's the voice that God wants to speak to each and every one of us every day of our life. You are my beloved. You know, going back to the earlier, the earlier verses here about the dogs and the Judaizers, see, I, I am sure there's no one in this room, I think, I'm sure, there's no one in this room that's putting a lot of confidence in your circumcision or your lack thereof. You know, there's no one in this room that's eating a kosher diet or, you know, practicing ritual cleansing in order to, to, to gain God's favor. Uh, so, so what's the point? I mean, how does this apply to us beyond just good, sound theology? Well, remember I, I, I said that, that this infection, this self-righteous infection or this self-loathing infection comes to us in subtle and often religious ways? See, how many of you can relate to a voice, that voice, telling you that you're not enough? That you're not devoted enough, you're not holy enough, you don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. You know, I, I'm not talking about the whole conviction of the Holy Spirit that is constantly urging on, us on, but that, that uh, haunting feelings of unworthiness. Can you, anybody relate to that? Or, or maybe uh, you can relate to those confident feelings that God must be really pleased with you right now because you're, you've been such a good boy or good girl this week in contrast to when you weren't such a good boy or good girl. Or, or, or maybe you can relate to those, t those tinges of superiority when, you, uh, when your spirituality seems to exceed that of those around you? See, all of those things is what Paul is, is he's grouped them together and he says, that, that, I'm running away from that. I'm putting that stuff behind me so that I can pursue God, that I can know him and live out 
of being the beloved of God. He says, I, he says, I want to have the same confidence that Jesus had in his belovedness. But see, that doesn't just play out in the religious sphere. Um, and we all realize that. I, one of my favorite little books of all time is a little book called uh, Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. And in it, he's writing to a friend of his, a non-believer, a Jewish friend of his, describing the Christian life. And he says, the whole Christian life can be boiled down to being and becoming the beloved of God. See, we live in a highly competitive, manipulative world. It's, it's the water that we swim in, like it or not. And there is constant pressure on us to prove ourselves valuable. There's constant pressure on us to compare ourselves to other people. How do we measure up? Are you, are you smart enough, successful enough, interesting enough, cool enough? Do you have enough compared to what others have? Do you have enough reputation or friends or wealth, or status, or toys. And then we're all so aware that in our culture we're, there's constant pressure asking, are you pretty enough, or handsome enough, or fit enough? Are you dressed cool enough? And see, all of those pressures seek to derail us from the simple joy that Paul was talking about here, the simple joy of being the beloved. That place of quiet confidence that, that knows deep in our gut that we're personally chosen and loved unconditionally by the Father. But when we cave in to those other pressures, if we listen to those other voices, we respond in one of two ways. On the one hand, if we listen to all of those voices that are shouting at us that we are no good, ugly, uh, worthless, nobodies, then we're living our lives in direct contradiction to the truth of the gospel, to what the Bible says concerning us, what the voice of the Holy Spirit continually reminds us that we're the beloved of God. We're the children of God. We're loved unconditionally. You are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. Well, you might think, well, that's, that's not my thing. I, I'm more tempted to be proudful, to be arrogant. But that's just the flip side of the same thing. That's this pathetic attempt to cover up those deeper feelings of unworthiness. So we present our, our achievements, our, our, our good looks, our, our intelligence as a way to prove that we have value and maybe more value that, than others. But see, that's, that's the proverbial rat race. There's no end to that because there's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody more successful. 
somebody better looking. To quote Paul, it's all dog poop. See, now, obviously, it's easier said than done. Paul says, not that I have already attained this, but I press on. See, this is one of those already but not yet realities of the Christian life. I am the beloved, but I'm becoming the beloved. Or another way to say that is I'm progressively living into that reality. That's the journey we're on. That's the race that Paul is talking about here. Newen in his book suggests that the first step forward is to unmask that destructive, competitive, uh, manipulative world for what it is. See, the more we recognize those pressures, the more that we can identify those voices, both the voices, uh, the, the, the negative voices and the flattering voices, the more we can resist them. Exposing the lies and embracing the truth of what, of the gospel revealed in, in the scriptures, in the Bible, and listening to that inner voice of the Holy Spirit that, that is daily, continually expressing the love of the Father, uh, allows us to live in this incredible freedom. Take a moment. Can you imagine the freedom if those pressures were not driving your th thinking and your thoughts and your emotions? That's the kind of life that Jesus has purchased for us. Let me read from Nguyen's book. Becoming the beloved means letting the truth of our belovedness become enfleshed in everything we think, say, or do. It entails a long and painful process of appropriation. Let me read that again. It entails a long and painful process of appropriation or better, incarnation. As long as being the beloved is little more than a beautiful thought or a lofty idea that hangs above my life to keep me from being depressed, nothing really changes. What is required is to become the beloved in the common places of my daily existence and bit by bit to close the gap that exists between what I know myself to be and the countless specific realities of everyday life. Becoming the beloved is pulling the truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am, in fact, thinking of, talking about, and doing from hour to hour. Is that good? The second step that no one suggests is that we need to surround ourselves with a community of like-minded people that will affirm that truth about who we are and what Christ has done for us in our life. See, those, those voices echo the voice of God to us. Now, I don't believe that Paul in, in, this, in this letter here 
sees heaven as the prize that we're moving towards. He talks about a heavenward call. That heavenward call is to know Christ in ever deeper and deeper ways. To know his unconditional love at the deepest parts of our being that will enable us then, will propel us to move forward with fruitful lives. But without that, we never can achieve the fruitfulness that we desire to see in our life. It says that he wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. See, in this instance, I don't believe he's talking about that dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, like for signs and wonders and healing. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit within us. That inner circumcision that cuts away our, our uh, self-serving and, and um, wrong thinking in our minds. Misguided hearts. So that we can live the kind of life that he's talking about. See, Paul urged us earlier in, in chapter 2 to follow Jesus' example. He says, let this mind be in you. Let this attitude be in you. That Jesus had, who emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. Oh, how do you do that? Well, again, the starting place is to live in that confident place. That place of confident faith that Jesus did it all. It's done. And I am loved. I'm not perfected. Not by far. I'm, I'm running my race. I'm continuing to run my race, but I'm ra running it into a deeper place of confidence about who I am because of what he has done. Remember, he's writing this to a church he really loved. And he's, he's urging them to live this kind of life together in love and unity. He writes this in chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do you see that same theme? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, the, the emptiness of trying to prove yourself or rise up above others and comparing yourself to others and all of that, the trap of that kind of living. He says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, just like Jesus washing the, the disciples' feet, he says, knowing this and having living out of that place of confidence enables us to live those kind of humble lives with one another. Here's one thing Paul brings up. That's always a good thing. Here's the one thing to pay attention to. He says, forget those things that are behind and press on to that which is ahead. You know, I'm older than all of you, except Richard back there. <laughs> and, you know, I've lived a really long, 
I've had a really long walk with Jesus since my college days when I met Christ. And I, like most all of you, I, I, I can look back at a lot of fruitful accomplishments that I've had in my life, as well as many, many failures and, and disappointments with myself in my life. But the one thing that Paul says is you never stop. You never rest on your laurels. Nor are you to be dissuaded by your past shortcomings. You know, for those of you who are older, there's some of you out there, the goal is to finish well. It's never over until it's over. You know, I meet people all of the time. Recently, I've met several older people who somehow lived in great zeal going after God and going for a deeper relationship and seeing their life transformed, and they just sort of got off the track and just are sitting there, have, have, have forgot that this, it's not over until it's over. We pursue him into deeper relationship continually our whole life. And those of you who are younger, remember to quote Peterson, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Knowing Jesus as your Lord and as your friend and living every day in the confidence of the Father's unconditional love for you is a goal. And it's a goal that's worth everything. Everything about you. It's worth it to pursue him. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to do things a little differently. We like to take time every week to reflect, to wait, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But I'm I'm going to ask you to just quiet yourself, however you do that. Close your eyes, open your eyes, whatever. But to consider, consider this. Consider this, what are the voices that are shouting at you? How familiar are you with the, the voice of God says, you're my beloved in whom I'm well pleased? And then can you identify those other voices? Those other, the, the pressures in your life that are demanding that you prove yourself. And I'm just going to ask that we take a few minutes, let the Holy Spirit speak to you.